You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I talk with John Corvino. John is a professor and chair of the philosophy department at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. He's also the co-author of Debating Same-Sex Marriage and the author of What's Wrong with Homosexuality. His latest book, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, will be available this spring. John has written for The Advocate, The LA Times, The Huffington Post, and The New York Times. And in the last 20 years, he has spoken at over 200 campuses on the issues of sexuality, ethics, and marriage. In this episode, we talk traditional marriage, homosexuality, religious liberty and discrimination, and philosophy and courage. Hello, John, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. John, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, I have a couple of answers I sometimes give to this, and they both are part are partially true, or they give a, a, a part of the picture. One is that when I was in college, I was planning on going into the priesthood. That That is true. And then when I decided not to go into the priesthood, I thought, what am I going to do with all these philosophy credits? And I'll go, oh, well, <laughs> well, teach philosophy. Uh, and, there, and there is like a partial truth to that. Uh, the other is that while I was in college, I was taking some courses at, at St. John's University in New York from some really wonderful professors who got me excited about philosophy and and made me realize that this was something that I could do and do for a living. And I had known at that point that I wanted to be a teacher. Even when I planned on going into the priesthood, I planned on teaching. In fact, I even as far back as high school, I, I wanted to teach something. But in college, as I got excited about my philosophy classes, I thought I could be a philosophy professor. And it was thanks to, to those professors that I was able to realize that that was a possibility for my life. Can you remember any of the courses that you took with them that got your attention? Well, I took a lot of political philosophy courses with Doug Rasmussen, who was one of the people who really uh, pushed me to go on to to graduate school. Arthur Gianelli, Father Bob Lauder. I mean, they they you know sort of the standard range of courses. Because St. John's is a Catholic school, they required students to take a number of philosophy courses, even as part of their general education curriculum. So. You know, basic courses in ethics, metaphysics, logic. I mean, that was a sort of standard thing that we did. And I enjoyed it. It it was fun. So what are the three most popular arguments raised against homosexuality, even in 2016? And what are your responses to them? Well, I usually divide the arguments into three basic categories, that it's wrong because it's unnatural, that it's wrong because it's harmful, or that it's wrong because it violates my religious beliefs. And, you know, on the question of unnaturalness, it really depends on what people mean by unnatural. One thing they might mean is that our organs all have a natural purpose, what is what they're designed for. And then one way to respond to that is say, well, of course, lots of our organs have multiple purposes. I can use my mouth for talking, for singing, for breathing, for licking stamps, for blowing bubbles, for kissing a woman or for kissing a man, seems really arbitrary to say, well, all of those are natural except the last one. So the general strategy with the naturalness arguments is to try to get people to explain what they mean by unnatural 
and then talk about the different ways in which that does or does not have moral relevance. Because you know, even if you call something unnatural, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We have to say more to sort of flesh out the, the moral significance of that. The harm arguments take all different kinds of forms, but the basic idea is that somehow same-sex relationships, homosexuality involve a harmful lifestyle. And those arguments tend to rest on a lot of bad social science data. So one way to address those arguments is to address that that bad data. And then finally, the religious arguments, it really depends on what people's religious traditions are. There are sort of two different ways one can go with that. One is to you know, try to work within that tradition and say, well, you know, yes, the Bible says this, but when we understand that in the context in which it was written, it, it, it seems to imply something very different from how you're using it. The other is to say, well, yes, the Bible says that, and that's, that's what it means, but the Bible is wrong about certain things. Uh, and again, when I say, say the Bible, different religious traditions have different scriptures, uh, but the one we hear most commonly in this country, uh, even today, is, is that the quote-unquote Judeo-Christian Bible uh, condemns same-sex relationships. And I think those scriptures do condemn certain forms of same-sex relationships, but whether we should take that as a blanket condemnation uh, I think is much more controversial. Then let's go back to that, the social science research bit. What is some of the social science that people appeal to? Well, a lot uh, of that has to do with effects on children and the idea that children do best in a mother-father family, and particularly with their own biological mother and father in a stable marriage relationship. The problem with that argument, even apart from some of the debates about the, the, the research and what it actually says, is that it doesn't sort of squarely face the options on the table, right? So, uh, you know, forbidding people to engage in same-sex relationships or have same-sex marriage isn't, doesn't mean that more children are going to end up with their married biological mother and father. It just means that the children of lesbian parents, of gay parents, the children who are currently being raised in those households will not get the benefit of the stability and the uh, social support of marriage, the legal support of marriage. So what's interesting is that with respect to those arguments, you can even grant some of the broad social science claims about you know, which family forms children have the best outcomes in and still not get the conclusion that the people want. Now, I don't think we should grant many of those social science claims because they often fail to distinguish between different kinds of households that, 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 ought, that ought, ought to be distinguished. I mean, there's a difference between children, for example, who have experienced divorce or some other event in their lives that has been disruptive in that way, and, and you know, children who begin their lives you know, either in a same-sex lesbian household, same-sex gay household, uh, and those things tend to get blurred in some of the research. Now, I want to go back. I'm kind of doing a reverse. I want to go back to, to the religious claim. Let's just call this person a kind of a religious skeptic of sorts, right? This person may say, or this person is religious, and they may say, well, the scripture says that homosexuality is wrong. If I am to make accommodations, whether that's a, a hermeneutical accommodation, then it ought to seem to be the case that I ought to make hermeneutical accommodations to a whole bunch of other laws and norms in the Bible. So where does the book stop? Or is homosexuality an exception to where we should make that kind of interpretation? Well, to the extent that it's an exception, it's an exception in that it's one of the places where people don't make the accommodations mm. that they're willing to make in other cases. I mean, probably the best example of that is divorce. Um, so, you know, uh, when we had not long ago the 
case in the news of Kim Davis, the Kentucky clerk who did not want to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. You know, she said it's because the, the Bible said that, that this is wrong and, and she wanted to enforce God's law, not human law. And when she was asked, well, what about divorce? And she herself had been divorced multiple times. But in a way, that's not relevant. What was relevant is that you know she had no problem issuing licenses to people who had been previously divorced. And her response to that was, well, that's between them and God. Yeah. But, you know, we can point to, play, well, well, wait a second. Okay, that's between them and God. But on this other case, you're going to enforce God's law. There's, It's a really inconsistent standard. And, you know, I, I think that what often tends to happen is not that people are really trying to, you know, produce this so, sort of consistent, coherent biblical standard that they're applying in all cases in their lives, but that they have these independent objections, maybe visceral reactions to same-sex relationships, and then they sort of pick out the parts of the Bible that help back that up. I, I don't want to make that as a general claim about all religious people, because I, I, I have many religious friends who really do try to hold hold all of that consistently and, and to be consistent in their interpretations of those things. But when we look at how this plays itself out in the political realm, you know, there is definitely inconsistency uh, with respect to homosexuality versus various other things that the Bible talks about. So let's just talk about that a little bit. I remember seeing a, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a meme, it was more of a graphic, I guess, informative kind of flyer. And it had uh, this notion about traditional marriage. And it says, let's go back to traditional marriage. And so it was kind of a satire on that particular rhetoric. And so it went throughout the Bible and looked at different kind of traditional marriages, such as marrying your sister or <laughs> having right. different wives, right. right? But people right. still employ this, this notion, this rhetoric, this concept of traditional marriage, uh, particularly as, I guess, opposition to homosexuality, or particularly same-sex marriage. What do you think is attractive about the concept of traditional marriage, and what do you think is, is behind it? Well, I get the idea because I'm kind of a traditional guy myself, right? I, I You know, I'm, I'm one of these people who appreciates sort of tried and true norms and, and doesn't like to rock the boat too much unless th there are good reasons to rock the boat. Uh, but sometimes there are good reasons to rock the boat. Sometimes we realize that the way we've been doing things, the way we've grown accustomed to do things, actually hurts people, uh, actually makes it harder for people to flourish in their lives and does so needlessly. And so I think that there's something appealing about tradition because people don't want to sort of reinvent morality from scratch in each generation. They appreciate sort of tried and true norms, but that we have to be careful not to let that appreciation for tradition become a kind of moral complacency, which too often it can become. I think in, in, in social movements that people have a tendency to fight for their particular agenda without seeing how other people's oppression and their own is, is linked. There are people in the gay and lesbian community, as well as others who do not see how a law like the North Carolina HB2 not only hurts mm. the transgender community, but can also hurt themselves. What problems, if any, do you think anti-transgender legislation brings to a society as a whole? Well, I think one thing that like anytime we scapegoat people, and I think what's happening with transgender people right now is that they're being used as scapegoats. People have come to realize that beating up on gay and lesbian people or even gay, lesbian and bisexual people, that that's not so cool anymore. People are going to push back about that. They're going to they're going to speak up. They're, they're going to recognize bigotry in that. So. Now, many people on the right wing are picking on transgender people and, and doing so in really hurtful and damaging ways. And that's bad because it's bad to treat people that way. But it's also bad because anytime we scapegoat a group, we miss the real threats that are facing us. So if we, like, look, if we want to protect people from aggressive sexual behavior, if we want to protect people 
from ways in which you know sexual assault might occur in, in bathrooms. It's it's not transgender people we need to worry about, right? right? They're, they're, right. right. Um, so you know, I, I think it's at best a distraction and at, at worst a real sort of moral travesty, a kind of perversion of what you know what we ought to be doing, which is to focus on the real threats. And particularly, you know, with respect to threats of sexual violence. You have a book coming out in the spring that addresses this question. So I'm going to throw it at you so that you can summarize your book to me in two minutes or less. Is it, yeah. is it, you mentioned Kim Davis. Is, is it possible to support religious liberty and oppose discrimination? I think it's not only possible to support religious liberty and oppose discrimination. I think supporting religious liberty is a way of opposing discrimination. Huh. I think that the, the legacy of religious liberty is a legacy of inclusion, it's a legacy of equality, it's a way in which we say that as a nation, as a people, we want to embrace diverse groups, diverse religious groups, and not marginalize people just because their practices happen to be different from our own. When people start using the religious liberty banner as a way of licensing discrimination, it, it betrays that legacy. It's, it, it's the, the opposite of what religious liberty has traditionally been about. And so the book, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination, is a point-counterpoint book. The counterpoint is being done by Sharif Gerges and Ryan Anderson, you know, two young natural law you know, defenders of traditional marriage. Uh, but it doesn't just talk about same-sex marriage. It talks about a range of issues that promote, you know, that provoke controversy under the, the topic of religious liberty. How, how would you put that in practice, right? Because there may be someone who says, you know, as a, let me just give an extreme case, go back to the, the issue of Kim Davis, for example. Mm -hmm. Although I'm a person who, you know, works for the city or work for the state, I believe that part of my religion says that homosexuality is wrong, right? And so although I may have a job, what is primary to me is my religious faith, right? And so for my job to make me have to go against what I believe are the tenets of my faith, it seems as if supporting religious liberty in some way may equate, or at least in appearance, to discrimination. So how do, you, how do you actually put it into practice? Well, I think the Kim Davis case is, in many ways, an easier case than some of the other cases that come up. You know, the, the, the other cases that come up are you know, bakers, florists, other wedding providers. The Kim Davis case involves somebody who is an elected official whose job it is to administer the law and who is explicitly denying the legitimacy of the law that she is bound to administer. And I think that if she feels that she cannot administer that law uh, in accordance with, with the legal requirements, the appropriate thing for her to do is to step aside. I mean, and, and look, you know, there have been cases throughout history where people said, look, I think a law is unjust. I, I, I can't be a part of this, but they don't expect to, you know, keep getting paid and, and not do the job. Right. You know, the thing to do is, is to resign. I think the cases of, you know, the bakers, the florists and, and so on, are somewhat different because we're not talking about elected officials. We're talking about private business owners. Right. But I also think that there's something important about the idea that when people enter the public square and that they they open businesses that are you know, treated as public accommodations, that that, it, that those businesses serve people equally, and that people don't have some sort of unpleasant surprises when, for example, you know they spend an entire day trying on wedding dresses in a wedding shop. And then, you know, are told later on, oh, no, no, we're not going to sell it to you because it's, it's for a same-sex wedding. And uh, that's just, you know, to me, a matter of basic fairness when we enter the public square and have to interact with people who may have different moral and religious beliefs but, you know, agree to abide by certain rules. 
The, the thing is, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, is that most states do not have statewide laws that protect people against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. So uh, it is perfectly legal in many places to turn people away from bakeries, from flower shops, from uh, wedding dress uh, stores and, and so on on the basis of those kinds of beliefs. So someone may be listening to this and, and thoughts of Jim Crow may come to mind, right? And they may be tempted to kind of form an analogy between civil rights struggle, particularly with black Americans and gay and lesbians today. What are your thoughts about forming an analogy between racial discrimination and LGBTQ discrimination? I think analogies can be useful. I think analogies can be tricky because what analogies do is they take two things that are different in certain respects but are similar in certain respects and and try to teach us something by looking at the similarities and the differences. I think there are ways in which the similarities between LGBTQ discrimination today and race discrimination today and in the past, uh, uh, there are ways in which those similarities can, can teach us something. Um, about the tendency people have to marginalize those they don't understand, they don't agree with, they don't want to understand. I think that that analogy can be overused in certain ways because I, I don't think the issues are exactly the same. Um, but but you know we we I, we never said that they were exactly the same. That, that's, analogies are not th- about things that are exactly the same. They're about things that are similar, and those similarities can be instructive. America has come a long way in its treatment of LGBTQ folks, still have a, a long way to go. But there's also uh, internationally, right, there are still countries in which people can be killed. What is your hope for the future? Well, my, my hope for the future is that, you know, we keep the we keep the progress growing. And, and look, you're absolutely right to bring up other countries because the things that happen in other countries uh, in terms of discrimination against LGBTQ people are shocking and horrifying. And we, you know, we often don't pay attention to those things. We don't, we don't, we, we sort of either avert our eyes or we, we don't bother sort of looking for that information. And I think it's important for us as a matter of basic human rights to pay attention to those things. But, but even here, you know, as you pointed out, transgender Americans are facing increasingly explicit hostility in certain states and in certain venues. And frankly, lesbian, gay, and bisexual Americans, you know, for all the progress we've made, uh, I think it's important to remember that, you know, our experience in academia, maybe our experience in cities where, you know, uh, people have, you know, access to more job opportunities, more education, and, and so on, does not necessarily represent the experience of people all across the country. I, you know, people are still in the closet. They are still experiencing rejection from their families. You know, teenagers are still being kicked out of the house because they're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and so on. So my hope is that even as we make that progress, we don't forget the people who are still struggling, and we don't forget that, you know, going back to the point on analogy, that the, the struggles that other people are experiencing may be helpfully informed by the things that we've learned through the progress that we've made so far. So, for example, you see a lot of the people who were involved in the marriage equality movement now moving on to work in other movements for social equality and acceptance in terms of public accommodations, in terms of employment discrimination, in terms of housing discrimination, and so on. Uh, You know, these things still need to be addressed. 
so you, you have shared the stage in your books, as you mentioned, with conservative thinkers who not only disagree with you, but perhaps also disagree with who you are, right? What value do you find in having conversations and debates with people across uh, different perspectives and different views? Because I see that you have done this, and I'm just so intrigued and interested to why you will do this, and what value do you find in it? Yeah, no, I, I do it a lot. Um, I, I've done it uh, in terms of you know, being on stage with people for debates and dialogues. I've done it in terms of the books, and, and you know, including the current book, Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. You know, I think there there are different values that can be achieved by that. First of first of all, and I think it's important to acknowledge this. You know, sometimes you just build relationships with people that you disagree with, and you do so in part because you click with them on various levels, right? That the you know some of these people are people I've come not just to respect intellectually, but to, to genuinely like. Uh, you know, and even though we disagree, we we actually enjoy each other's company and want to understand where the other is coming from. Part of the value is in seeking that understanding. You know, we, we share the world with people who disagree with us. Why do we disagree? Well, I think we can answer that question more easily if we are able to sit down at the table and engage in genuine dialogue and build a relationship uh, from which we can address those questions. And I think part of the value is that we are confronted with these conflicts that require some kind of resolution. I mean, the, 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 these issues that divide us are practical issues about what to do in the world, what kinds of laws we're going to have, what kinds of policies we're going to have, how we're going to treat one another. And if we can talk through those things, if we can use the skills that we learn in philosophy of critical thinking uh, and engagement, of really looking at the best reasons and working through those reasons, uh, we have a better chance of solving those problems successfully. So, you know, I believe in this as 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 a, as a person who wants to get along with my fellow human beings, I believe in this as a philosopher who thinks you know the value of reasoned, thoughtful debate is, is a real thing and, and is something that we we ought to to promote. You've been exploring these issues in your writing for years. As a philosopher, I'm interested. How did you get the courage to explore these issues publicly? And what advice would you give to an academic who may not necessarily want to write about these issues, but they find it professionally risky? to be out in academia? Well, first of all, I want to say I get it that they find it risky to be out in academia. You know, I I sometimes say that by the time I went on the academic job market, there was nothing I could do. You know, I'd put my CV in the copy machine and it would come out lavender. I mean, it was just, <laughs> I, there was, it, it was already on, because I had already started, I mean, I had done the book Same Sex, it was an anthology. I had uh, done a, a number of papers on this. I had done um, a bunch of campus talks on, on this sort of thing. So there was not a whole lot that I could do at that point, to sort of cover my, my identity as, as I went on the academic job market. Right. I think it's gotten easier today for people in most areas of philosophy to be out. Although, again, I, I think we have to be careful not to overgeneralize from that. I mean, there are still certainly biases in this area. I got into it myself, I mean, partly by accident. You know, back in 1992, so almost 25 years ago, I was a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Texas at Austin. I, we were doing what we at the time called Gay and Lesbian Awareness Week, and we didn't have a huge budget back then, so we would, you know, ask people, you know, we would ask one another, okay, so what, what, what can you do as part of this week? What can you do? And, and so somebody said, well, John, you're a philosophy grad student. Why don't you do a talk on the moral arguments against homosexuality. I'm like, okay. 
Uh, and it's funny because on my YouTube page, there's a clip from that 1992 talk. Oh, I, wow. I, I was, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very young, and, and <laughs> I, I, I bounce around the, the room a lot and talk with my hands. But um, uh, So, I, so I, I gave that talk, and then by, you know, by word of mouth, people started hearing about it and inviting me to, to give it in other places. And before I knew it, I you know, had this, I don't know if you want to call it a side career. In many ways, it became woven into my main career. Uh, as the gay moralist, as, as the person who was, you know, talking about and writing about these moral arguments. And, you know, for me, it was a wonderful opportunity to do the philosophy that I love doing, you know, to engage, engage with arguments in a way that I really enjoyed, but also to do something useful to actually reach out to people and help people and uh, try to make the situation better. So, you know, what I would say to, you know, people who, who want to do this sort of thing, it, it, it can be really wonderful. And it's not to deny the realities of the academic job market and, and how we, you know, have to be sort of careful as we go on the academic job market, because, you know, people still have ideas about what counts as serious work and, and serious philosophy. You know, one thing that I think that made it easier for me is that I, you know, my dissertation was on Hume's metaethics. So I, I had what many people would sort of have, you know, have classified as, as as a more you know serious traditional uh, line of work uh, in philosophy alongside this. But then you know as, as I went along and and as I worked toward tenure and as as I got tenure, it, it freed me up to you know be able to to do things that some people might not think of as as serious as 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 mainstream, but that fit with what I love doing and what I thought could be most helpful and useful. John, thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it and I really learned a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it as well. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.